morning, everyone. Um, I wonder if you've ever been lost in a really good book. Such a good book that is written in such a way that you're almost transported to that other place, even though there's no pictures. Most adult books don't have pictures, do they? So we're left to imagine it ourselves. Now, I don't have a huge amount of time to read fiction books, but we went on holiday uh, in Easter holidays, and so I picked up a book uh, for the flight, and it was a very good book, and I really got into it. And it was one of these kind of books. This particular book transported me to the desert in Oman, in 1958 and also 1909, it was one of those two-story fiction books, and um, it was just amazing because I've never been to the desert, and yet you could picture it so uh, well. Had the author described it, that I was totally there. So much so that last Saturday, in, with one hand I'm cooking the bolognese for lasagna, and in the other hand I've actually got this book because I was near the end of it. And like I'm in the Oman Desert, and oh gosh, I'm just cooking some lasagna. But and, and I'm here in the desert, and you know, one of the children came to say something. I didn't hear a word they said because I was so transported in this time. I hope you've had experiences of reading books like that.、Um, They're often few and far between, actually, but、uh, they stick with you. I hope this morning to paint a vivid picture. It won't be as good as、uh, the author of this book I, I was、uh, reading, but I hope to paint a vivid picture of first-century Macedonia, Greek, Palestine, Israel—that whole region around the Mediterranean—to help us capture a sense of what is happening and get the context we need to fully appreciate the verses that we're looking at today as we continue our series in First Thessalonians. You see, there's a bit of a step change from the previous three chapters. It could have ended last week when John was speaking.、Uh, the last words were, "May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones." You know, we talked about how well the church is doing. It could have ended there, but we now move on to a few points that Paul wants to address. The, all these next sections kind of start with. As is as for other matters, and then it goes on to, we do not want you to be uninformed about times and dates. Now we ask you. So there's sort of some final things that Paul wants to get across before he signs off. We've seen what a brilliant job the church is doing, but Paul wants us to focus on some particular areas. And as we look at this and apply it to our context, I want to ask if God has a challenge to Gateway in our ministry as a church body. We'll see that Paul urges the church to do more and more, urges them in certain areas to do more and more. I wonder if he is saying to us there are certain areas where he would urge us to do so more and more. So before I get going, I just want to pray specifically about that. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks about a certain time and place. But that we can bring it into our own context. And Lord, I want to pray today that as we look at this passage, you would be speaking to us. You would be prompting the prophetic that we would hear from you. That what you would say to us as a church, Lord God, we want to know if there's areas that you would urge us to do more and more.、Uh, so, Lord God, would you be speaking to us this morning? Amen. So Caleb set out the history of the founding of the Thessalonian church, and then John drew out seven keys to effective ministry from chapters two and three. Paul was only there a few weeks. I've got Caleb had a great map, so we'll just bring this map back up. I really think you found a great map because it's got everything on it, hasn't it? You've got Rome, so you've got the whole context of Rome, which of course the Roman Empire has come all the way across here, and you've just about got Jerusalem on the、uh, on the end of the map here, and we're of course smack bang in the middle. 
Macedonia, and Paul is in Athens, so he's in Greek. So, and he's from Tarsus, and his kind of base church, his sort of missionary sending church, is the Syrian Antioch church there. So you've kind of, you've got that whole context going on. He's come out of Syria, um, but then he's been in Macedonia, which is the church he's writing to. He's now in Greece, but of course the, the head church is in Jerusalem. So it, it's all relevant. It's just a great map uh, to kind of picture it all. So we've got first century Greek culture throughout Greece and Macedonia, which is where Paul is, which is actually quite a contrast to Jesus, who was in Galilee. No Greek culture. And very much Jesus, of course, was in the villages around the Sea of Galilee, and Paul is often in towns and cities. They're under Roman rule, with all that Caesar might insist they do, as a place under occupation. And so religion's kind of a mix of Greek gods, Roman gods, and worshipping Caesar himself. So it's a real eclectic mix. But actually, the Jews had special dispensation to worship their own god. So the Jews were different. They were allowed to worship their own god. They didn't have to worship Caesar. But they're a separate ethnic group, as we know. They are the people of God that we've seen through the Old Testament, and they are marked by circumcision. And it's interesting, you'll remember in Thessalonica, the Jews are the ones that stir up the riots against uh, against Paul. And they don't come and say, they're raising up these people to worship a god, a creator god, because the Jews are doing that, and they've already been allowed to do that. What they say is, they're stirring them up to worship a different king, King Jesus. That was a distinctive, and Caesar would not be happy about that because he was a king over the Roman Empire. Um, So it can be hard for us to capture, therefore, how distinctive the early church was. I'm hoping we can get a real... It's just a radical imagining of how to be. Because it's bringing together people from all nations, not a single ethnic group. It's bringing together, and we see that, we're bringing together some Jews who've converted to Christianity, some Gentiles, including some prominent women. That's what it tells us in that passage. And they're all brought together to live in family. To live in family. And it's not been modelled by Jesus. Jesus didn't set up the early church. He had a band of disciples that he discipled and he went spreading the good news of the kingdom. So I don't think it would be possible in human terms alone to have built the church in this radical way. It is clearly Holy Spirit inspired. Especially when you think about the slave, free, Roman, non-Roman, male, female distinctions of the time. And that's what we'll see a bit more about today. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, first of all, says the following. As for other matters, brothers and sisters... We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, 
and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. In this passage, Paul tackles head-on the subject of sexual immorality. Not, as in 1 Corinthians 5, because there's a reported case of sexual immorality. There there was, a man was sleeping with his father's wife. Here there isn't a particular case, so why is it emphasised? Let's remember this is one of Paul's earliest letters, uh, and ensuring the church is well-grounded is of fundamental importance. So the church was founded, and we read about that in Acts chapter 17. But if we turn back to Acts chapter 15, there's a really important council that happens in Jerusalem. After Paul and Barnabas went there to seek the, to settle the question, you see, they'd been in Antioch, Syrian Antioch, and uh, they were working amongst Gentiles, which they were not requiring them to be circumcised. Some believers came up from Jerusalem, and they were causing a bit of a problem. They were saying, no, this is wrong. The Gentiles need to be circumcised. You shouldn't be eating with them. Paul and Barnabas were really not happy about this, and they just felt this is not what we believe God would say. This is not what Jesus came for. It, he came to abolish the old law. So Paul and Barnabas head up to Jerusalem to find the disciples and have a chat with them. And Peter, meanwhile, had had a vision. Uh, for those of you who know uh, your book of Acts, you will remember he had a vision of all these animals coming down and he was told they were all clean. And he went to Cornelius, and he was amazed to find this Gentile believer and the Holy Spirit there amongst Cornelius. So he'd had this kind of emotional realization that actually the gospel was for Gentiles too, and that's non-Jews. But there was all this confusion. So Paul and Barnabas go up. They just say, we don't think you've got this right. Theologically, this isn't right. Peter knows emotionally that he's had this vision. So we get to this point where James, Jesus' half-brother, is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He comes to a decision. What are we going to do about this conflict? Acts chapter 15, verse 19. It is my judgment, this is James, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. It should not be difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Thank goodness, that's the conclusion they came to. Um, but, you know, three of those are linked to idolatry. The food polluted by idols, the strangled animals, and the blood is all linked in with idolatry. And then you have sexual immorality. After centuries of Christian rule uh, in this country, and you know, it, it might seem surprising, why is that what they've picked out? But it's helpful to contrast that with the culture of the time. You may think some things you read these days are shocking. Well, they are nothing compared to Roman and Greek times. Uh, having looked it up, I've even learnt new words like pedastry. Um, status was everything, and it was terribly sexually immoral. 
Men would simply abuse boys and slaves whenever they had the urge. Women married young. They, of course, needed to be a virgin, usually to someone older who was then unfaithful and could do what he liked in the area of sexual behavior. There was also lots of divorce, so the women, there was a lot of divorce as well in the Roman Empire, and prostitution was a big part of worship. So, a complete mess, really. Uh, I love this quote from Demosthenes, an ancient Greek statesman. We keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body. We keep wives for the faithful guardianship of our homes. As a woman, boy, am I glad I didn't live then. Um, against this background, the well-quoted verse, no slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, takes on an even more revolutionary, radical feel in the context of sex. Men are to be faithful. This is totally countercultural to the Roman and Greek way of things. It is genuinely putting them as equals with their wives, who are already expected to be faithful. Now each is to be faithful to the other. That was totally countercultural. The call to holy living in the area of our bodies shows an incredible honoring of slaves, of children, of women in that context where they were totally seen as for their use and pleasure. They will be protected. In the church, they will be protected, set apart from a godless culture and its sexual immorality. The title of this series is about holiness and hope. And this, the focus today very much, is holiness, set apart. In the area of sexual immorality, we are to set ourselves apart from a godless culture and its sexual immorality. And that's why Paul instructs each to learn to control their own body. What they saw around them was a culture where the men of status could do what they liked. It was all about status. They'd just go and find a boy or a slave rather than control their own body. Horrifying as it sounds, that is what it was like. So this call to come through and know you need to control your body is just to rip away what was going on around them. And the wonderful thing, as we know about our faith, is that status does not matter. In a culture where status mattered so much in the Roman and Greek times, status should not matter. We should all be equal in the church. Paul talks about this instruction coming directly from God. And we trace that, of course, to the Garden of Eden, before the law of Moses was ever established, which is why it still holds for this early church. This wasn't something that Moses brought in, it wasn't something that God gave Moses as part of the law, nor incidentally was the stuff about food that came with Noah, uh, but the sexual immorality right there from the beginning, Adam, of course, and then it was not good for him to be alone, and he was given a life partner, and they were to be faithful to each other, and they were to form a family. So Paul, um, he he also instructs in this passage them not to take advantage of a brother or sister. And as I've looked at this whole passage and thought of what we've talked about, building down, building up, building out, and I've just thought this really hits into all three of those. Because firstly, 
If we avoid sexual immorality, we please God. It was there right at the beginning. How to live in order to please God. Not to earn God's favor, not so that he would love us more, because that cannot happen. He already loves us completely. But as part of our sanctification, as part of living in a way that pleases him, sexual immorality is to be avoided. But it also protects one another. You see, there was no blueprint of how to do the church, and now suddenly everyone's together. We're family, we're brothers and sisters from different cultures with all this background going on. This is a beautiful way to ensure that everyone is honoured and not made to feel vulnerable because they are young or a slave. No one, is, should, no one should feel without value because they're female or single. In the church family, it is not and never should be about status. And actually, Jesus' heart, Paul's heart, is for the vulnerable. It's for those who feel most um, pushed out by the culture in which they live, that we would love to see, find belonging in the sense of family that is the church. And so also by doing something so clearly different, it's a witness. It promotes the way. The way was how they, uh, many of the early believers were called. They, they were followers of the way, uh, meaning uh, Christians. So it points the way to a different way of living. And therefore, it is likely to be particularly attractive to those left vulnerable in the sexually immoral culture of the day. Perhaps that's why prominent women are emphasized in that early, when you hear about who's part of that early church in Thessalonica. It's wonderful to think that eventually the Roman Empire, through Emperor Constantine, absorbed Christianity into its thinking, and such ethics and focus on sexual purity became mainstream. But they weren't at the time that the church was formed. I want to move on to the other section of um, this passage, which is verses 9 to 12, and it says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. The focus here is on leading a quiet life and putting your hands to work. Interestingly, the Romans and Greeks looked down on manual labor. After all, they did have slaves to do that. But our example lies in a carpenter saviour. His choice of fishermen disciples and tent-making missionaries. If we think of all John shared last week about our ministry, being focused on our mission with the right motive, the right means, etc., we would do well to put our heads down and set to our task. Not worrying what others are doing, avoiding gossip and time-wasting. These are helpful principles that we can all live by. There's a little, um, little section of verse 10 that I just want to pull out. It says, you, and in fact, you love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. 
So we know that they love each other well, but they actually love throughout Macedonia. Uh, and I just think it's good just to pause. We've obviously already thought about it this morning with Rennie sharing about Hungary, that we are part of a worldwide family of believers. And that's why we pray about Christians in other parts of the world. That's why we give to projects in other parts of the world. We recognize that we are part of one big church family. Verse 12 ends with a powerful reminder of the impact of living in the way that we do. I'm going to read it again. So that, so you need to be doing all this, leading a quiet life, working with your hands, avoiding sexual immorality, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Not being dependent allows us to live freely in accordance with God's plan for us, not someone else's. That's kind of the main thing I want to draw out of that. Uh, it's more that if, if they, if that early church was dependent on kind of the Roman authorities around them, then it could get difficult to focus on what they were doing. But if they were able to be independent of others in that sense, because we as a church, we totally want to be dependent, interdependent, don't we? We want to do life together. But this is more talking about if we as a church can do things without being dependent on others, it just enables us to free up and just take all our instructions from God and do what God asks us to do and move forwards into that. But it's this bit about winning the respect of outsiders that I really want us to sort of dwell on and take to heart uh, this morning. This is all about our walk equaling our talk. It's about practicing what we preach. It's about making sure there isn't just a Sunday behavior or Sunday words, and then we act completely differently when we go out the door. Because otherwise, how will the outsiders hear how we do life inside, as it were? God has purposed us to be something quite radical. A worldwide family spanning gender, ethnicity, and status. You know, done well, we can cross all lines. We could be in a room with, with an ex-offender who knows Jesus, with a homeless guy who knows Jesus, with the Queen of England, with... Mary Berry, various Christians that are around. You, we could all be in the same room, and there is a bond because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. They, they are words that are said, but they are not just words that are said. I hope that you have had experiences where you've connected with a complete stranger because they are a Christian. I want to share with you one of my favorite stories, uh, an experience I had. So many years ago, and this reference back to Ian Ormisher, actually, I went to visit Ian and Mandy Ormisher, um, and they were over in China, and I went and I was going to travel with them afterwards, but they were unable to uh, because of the work that they were doing. They were too busy, and we weren't able to go. So I thought, well, I'm not coming all this way. I'll travel on my own. So for four weeks, I was, I don't know, 22, 21 years old, I went traveling around China. It did happen to be when um, NATO bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, so it was a little bit of a uh, difficult time at one point. But I was traveling somewhere down in the south, I should have checked my words, Sue, for you, because you know where I am, somewhere near Kunming, um, over around there, and 
I met this American couple who were Christians, and we got chatting, and, you know, as you do when you're traveling, and they said, oh, are you going to come and visit Beijing? And I said, oh, yes, yeah, I am. She said, you, should, you should hook up with our friend Dawn. Let me give you her number. You should call Dawn when you get to Beijing. She'd love to meet you. So I pocketed the number, and off I went, and about three weeks later, I made it to Beijing. I thought, okay, well, we'll call Dawn. I called Dawn, and she's like, yeah, come on. And she was working at the Holiday Inn um, as a nursery teacher. A lot of expats lived at the Holiday Inn, and their kids would go to the nursery, and then, and then they would go off to work. She's like, come and stay with me. And, and I came, and I was there for quite a few days. And Beijing, if you've ever been, is quite an overwhelming huge city, and actually it was such a gift from God that I got to have someone there who could just help orientate me a bit of where I should go. I went to church with her, one of her friends lent me his bike so that I could cycle around, and it was just, I mean, incredible. She didn't know me from Adam, and it was a complete, the trust and the connection because we both love Jesus meant that you could do that. And a couple of years later, she came to visit me in London, and I was able to repay the favor. But that isn't a common thing. You know, we, 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 if you've been a Christian for a long time, you may think, well, that's just quite normal. But it really isn't to have that connection with someone so cool, who could be so different from you. In a world of echo chambers, where so many only associate with like-minded people, this makes us unique and is a witness to the world. Not in our strength, of course, but by the power of Christ. The world needs to see this more than ever. So there's an invitation to us to be a light, a light on a hill and not hide it under a bushel. This, of course, comes straight from Jesus. If the band want to make their way up, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. As a church, we have I was going to say an invitation, but I think it's a, you know, it's a call. It's, it's more than an invitation. It's a call. It's almost really a command, as in our commission, to be that light, to show the world how you can live. People from different backgrounds, different nations, different situations, how we can be family together. We can't do it in our own strength, but we do it through Jesus. And people will be attracted to that. It's my prayer that those who feel most at sea uh, out in the world, most lost in our current culture, the vulnerable, feel attracted in, but they need to see it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for uh, what John was praying earlier about you being the light the light that dispels the darkness. But we thank you that you live in us and that you ask us to shine our light out to the world around us. Lord, we thank you for your word that tells us that when the way we live 
makes a difference to how people outside see us. And Lord, we thank you that your plan was to create a worldwide family, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ with our brothers and sisters all around the world. Lord, we thank you that you that your plan for us is perfect. We thank you that you give us all that we need to be countercultural. Lord, we long to please you. Would you guide us? And, and Lord, I do pray you would be showing us where you would urge us to do something more and more. Thank you, Lord. Amen.